to be with you this morning. I was with you the last two weeks, and this is my first time back preaching. And I can't believe it's already June. It's June. And things have been different for me since April 8th. I don't recommend jumping off a three-story building to save a young person from thugs. I'm not... I'm not saying I did that. I just, I wouldn't recommend that. I would call the police. <laughs> Actually, mine is a lot less glamorous, and uh, we'll see how it does hanging down this morning. Uh, as Alan read from, we have opened our scriptures to the book of Revelation, which is the last book of 66 books. And what you're going to notice is that the theme does not change. The focus, just as it was throughout all redemptive history, is still on Jesus Christ. Um, Before we get to that and prepare further our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to thank the church again. Uh, We have a kind of a fluid congregation, and I want to make sure everybody has heard us say thank you for your care, for your prayers, and the offering that was taken up two weeks ago to help us during uh, this season of life that we are in. And again, as I've said before, I want to thank uh, two men in particular that have preached and taught out of season, as Paul instructed Timothy to do, and that's Pastor Matt and also Robert Alleman for me on Wednesdays, and very thankful for the men. This is this season. uh, I've sustained injuries before, but nothing like this. And this season has been a time of stillness. You know, sometimes God orchestrates stillness so that we can see him afresh. And it's been a time of growth. It's been a good time connecting with the family because I'm always there. You know, so they they come through the front door, I'm there, or they know where to find me. And this is going to be a big season of change for our family as uh, one, Lord willing, will be married and the other one is going into the Navy. And so it's been a really a gift for me to have some life-on-life uh, additional time with my family. One of the things I've given sustained thought to is, is not how do you endure trials. We've been through trials before. We've almost lost children before. Uh, we've seen difficulty before. So all those verses are familiar and came back. But one of the things, uh, one of the few things I've given sustained thought to is the church. This church, this local church called Highlands, Uh, Churches in our region, I was just asked yesterday if I knew of a church down on East Mississippi in South Havana, and I didn't know. The church in America, not just where they're located, but the health of those churches, are they simply protecting institutions and and outdated strategies, or are they healthy, are they disciple-making churches? And then churches throughout the world, and also churches where there really is no church. Peoples who will never lift the symbols of broken body and shed blood to their lips because they've never heard of Jesus Christ. Whose responsibility is that? To get the gospel message there. Right now, I do not have a beautiful foot. Uh, I've showed some of the people my foot. My one son said it looks reptilian because the whole outer layer is cracked and dead. Somebody Um, subtly recommended I get a pedicure last Sunday because the foot is, frankly, it's ugly and it's somewhat useless right now. I can't 
load bear on this foot for another nine weeks, and it happened more than two months ago. But listen to what Romans says. How beautiful, well, it says are the feet, not the foot, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who what? Who bring good news. But how will they hear unless they are what? Sent. What sends them? I mean, today, if you're in Africa, it's a land cruiser. But the idea of the feet being beautiful is not the aesthetic appearance of the feet, but the functionality of the feet and what they do. And it's our feet that take the good news of Jesus Christ where they've never heard of Christ. And it's our feet that are supposed to walk over to our neighbors who have heard of Christ but still reject him. Those feet, functionally, are beautiful because of what they do. We're going to see that in Revelation. And not to disappoint, you're also going to see this thing called the church in Revelation. There are seven specific churches in Revelation. And that's going to give us an idea of God's purpose and our calling as this church. What, what is our calling and our mission? What is it that God wants us to do together? We're going to look at more of that as we get into the letters of the churches. But I want you to look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Revelation 1, verse 4 says, John to the seven, what's the next word? Churches that are in Asia. Here we are in this incredible book, the last book of your entire scriptures. And you can't get away from this thought that Christ said he would do in Matthew 16, that he would build his church. And he has not sidelined the church in Revelation, even though what you're going to see is breathtaking and staggering. He still has a heart for his bride, the church. Look at verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Real locations, real people, and for most of them, real problems. And yet, God doesn't design a plan B. He still goes to his churches. Can I ask you what thoughts, affections, or attitudes come to mind when you hear those two words, the churches? What, what immediately springs to your mind? Young people, what thoughts do you have in your seven years of life or 13 years of life or 18 years of life? What thoughts? Is it, well, that's where we have to go Sunday morning. So it becomes a location and a time frame. Or... It's effective, or it just doesn't meet my needs, or important but not necessary, or a conviction, what the Apostle Paul said, it is the pillar and foundation of truth. What affections? Joy? Hurt? Cynicism? Anticipation? Hope? What attitudes? Casual? Take it or leave it? I'm out of here as soon as I'm old enough? Committed and dependable or vital for the mission Christ has called us to. What about what Jesus said in Matthew 16? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
The book of Revelation brings us back to the glory and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That's who we're going to see. Matter of fact, chapter 1, in some ways, will not be what you expect. When you see the vision of the Son of Man, one of his own disciples, very close to him, the Apostle John, when he saw this revealed person of Christ, he fell down as a dead man. That's what chapter 1 says. Wait a minute. John walked with him. John taught for him. John suffered for the sake of the gospel. And he sees Jesus Christ like he had never seen in Galilee or down in Jerusalem. And he falls down at his feet as a dead man. And John was even one of those that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he still falls down. As we observe the Lord's Supper this morning, I'd like for us to celebrate three descriptions John gives in the introduction of Christ's person. And three descriptions that John gives of his work. You're going to see that in verses 4 through 6. And here's what the book of Revelation does. It depicts Jesus as the risen, glorified Son of God ministering among the churches. You can't escape that connection. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 to 5. And I just want you to read it quietly, and I want you to see sort of the three descriptions of the person of Christ. What does John say about Jesus? And then in verses 5, the second part, we'll say 5b to to verse 6, what is celebrated about Christ's redemptive work? What three descriptions are given about his work? So what does this introduction say about who Jesus is? And what does the introduction say about what Jesus has done or does? So here's the theme of the book. The certain triumph of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God on earth. The reclamation, the return, and the reign of the king of kings. And it's intended to sound majestic because it is. And here's what I propose this morning that each of us considers. Submit to Christ's reign because of who he is, what he has done, and what he is about to do. Submit to the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ because of what he has done, what he, who he is, and what he is about to do. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this. Lord, open our spiritual eyes once again, both believers And unbelievers, to see the truth about who you are, about what you have done, and about what you are about to do. Lord, may we let your word sink deep into our heart, and by your Holy Spirit, allow him to effect real change, real perspective, and real purpose in this life. Lord, this morning, in the short time we have together, help each one to submit to your reign because of who you are, what you have done, and what you're about to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who wrote this letter? Do we know? The Apostle John. Where was he when he received the vision? On the island of Patmos. 
And Patmos is an island in the Mediterranean where the Romans used to exile prisoners. And on that island existed salt mines. I want you to look at verse 1 because John's going to give you the purpose of this letter. Look at 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must what? Soon take place. Okay, that's what revelation is. It is a broad sweeping view, a somewhat detailed account of the things that still are future. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So John is not merely trying to satisfy curiosity. John's not trying to be sensational. John does not intend for us to see every headline of CNN or Fox News in the book of Revelation. This is not a sort of connect-the-dot specific timeline, though there is timing. John urged the churches in Asia, and by extension, us, to obey the words of this prophecy. Why? Because here's what John says. And, and by the way, my personal family testimony, for years my mother would not read the book of Revelation because she feared it. She feared to look into the future of certain things. Things that must soon take place. Turn with me now to the last chapter of the last book of your scriptures. Turn with me to Revelation 22. So in, in John 1, 1, he says to show my servants things which must soon take place. In the last chapter of the last book, Revelation 22, look at verse 11, 11 to 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. You read that one more time. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Are you ready for that? Revelation is intended to make you ready for that. Are you ready for him? Are you ready for Christ's appearing? Are you re- Let me ask you this. Are you ready for payment for what you have done? Are you ready to be repaid because there's a fearful line in which the scripture says for the wages the payment of sin is what are you ready for that or are you ready for the righteous judge to return and to reward you based upon your faithfulness and your service to him in so many areas that the world has never seen i mean where lies your anticipation A joyful looking or sort of a hesitant caution. What are those things that must soon take place? We're going to get to this. We're going to look at this as we allow the book of Revelation to sort of just open up to us. Here's what will take place. The full glory and majesty of Christ like you have never seen him before. The downfall, ultimate defeat, and destiny of Satan. The end of human history as we know it. The final political setup of the world. The entrance and career of the Antichrist. The battle of Armageddon. All that is what must take place. 
The ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over all human and demonic resistance. The great white throne judgment. And who will be at the great white throne judgment? The same ones who we're going to look at in just a minute. When they see his appearing, all the tribes of the earth wail on account of him. The new heaven and the new earth, the final state of the wicked, the final state of the righteous. John MacArthur stated of this book, quote, it is a front page story of the future of the world written by someone who has seen it all. Isn't that exciting? So the central theme, look at chapter one, verse one. In a very unique way, the book of Revelation is about it's not just a revelation of future events. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospels reveal Jesus Christ, but the Gospels primarily reveal Jesus in his first advent, his first coming. Right. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his first advent. And Revelation presents Jesus primarily in his second advent. Or if you go to Philippians 2, the Gospels present him in his humility. Revelation presents him in his exaltation. And there are both to be considered. As a matter of fact, when we go to the Lord's table this morning, this ordinance specifically is designed to, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, his humility, until he comes, his exaltation, his appearing. Let me read again verse, the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what's about to be opened up to you. Which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. A faithful apostle, disciple, missionary. This book, like none of the other 66 books, comes with this promise of blessing. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Why? For the time is near. Then John moves into his greeting. And in this, we're going to be reminded of the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him. And he's going to repeat this phrase two times. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. From him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Grace to you and peace. What is grace? We use that so often. That sometimes we don't understand what it means. Children get in trouble and they want what? Grace. We get in trouble and we want what? Got really silent when we started talking about the adults, right? We want, we want grace too. But what is biblical grace? It is 
divine favor showed to the human race who sinned, who did not deserve God's favor. And peace is the spiritual state of well-being that follows as a result of tasting God's grace. Grace to you and peace. And again, from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The focus again, even in the grace and the peace, is this one who is eternal. Its focus is Christ. And we must get this here at the beginning. The focus of Revelation is Christ, not just details or events or us or fearful descriptions of breathtaking developments, but the focus is a single person. And the focus is Jesus Christ. And you're going to see him walking amidst seven churches. And he's going to be giving to these churches. He's going to be evaluating them. And he's going to give them commendation and condemnation. And in one case, he said, you are, you are so close to not reflecting me well, I'm going to put out your light. In that area, it would have been better to have complete darkness than a distorted and ugly church. Any future hope, any idea for the church, any understanding of end time events that misses Jesus Christ as preeminent, that overlooks him who is and who was and who is to come, is false and toxic teaching. We're not here to just learn more about stuff. We're here to bow our hearts and our knees in awe to Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Him. What are the three descriptions or titles for Jesus? Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the first faithful witness, second, the firstborn of the dead, and third, the ruler of kings on earth. And, and each of these themes about who Jesus is becomes critical for the rest of the book of Revelation. So what do these mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness? Well, he was our mediator who bore witness to the truth. Right? He personified accurately. He was the exact representation of God. And he was a faithful witness. The idea of witness is also linked to persecution and martyrdom. He was a faithful Witness. As a matter of fact, part of the essence of the gospel is Christ died for your sins. He is a faithful witness. Faithfulness implies perseverance, standing against evil and idolatry when it may cost one his or her life. Faithful witness also anticipates the centrality of the Lamb of God, which becomes another theme in Revelation a redemption that points to its final state, but also reminds us of the source, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Even as Matt read this morning, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. He is a faithful witness. He's not only a faithful witness, but secondly, he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, how can that be? I thought others were resurrected. Yes, but Jesus Christ died and rose again to never what again? 
He's the first one who didn't die again, right? Even Lazarus, who was a believer, died again. But not Jesus Christ. He defeated death, preeminent, sovereign over life and death. The first who would bodily resurrect, never to die again. And he is the one who makes our resurrection possible. This idea permeates the book of Revelation. Christ has, in a sense, taken control of death. He has seized it and he will destroy it, Revelation 20, verse 14, so that death will be, listen to this statement in Revelation 21, 4, so that death will be no more. What a glorious day that will be. Can I ask you a personal question? You know I'm going to anyway, right? The thing or person you are giving most of your time, passion, and money to, does it have an answer for death? Does your technical or plastic or metal absorption, fixation, have an answer for eternal death? Does it offer a saving response to sin and death? Because Revelation 1 points you to who does. So he alone is worthy of worship. The third statement, title, is Jesus Christ, the ruler of kings on earth. So it makes sense that the one who is sovereign, who seizes death and destroys it and puts it away so that death is no more, it makes sense that he will rule kings of the earth. Think of a few of those kings. Herod, Pilate, Caesar, Putin, Trump, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un. All earthly rulers. But Jesus Christ is, Revelation 19.16, King of kings and Lord of lords. Uncontested, unrivaled kingship. Not any other ruler, even a good ruler, is worthy of worship because they are not able to save. They are not able to forgive sin. They did not offer a perfect blood sacrifice to God. It's interesting to note that at the time of this book, it falls under the reign of Domitian in Rome. Domitian is remembered for being the first emperor to insist on being addressed with this title, our Lord, our God. And then in humility, of course, years before Jesus died, Domitian feels threatened, so he issues this great persecution against believers. And one day he will meet, as Revelation 1 says, the ruler of kings on earth. How would you describe, from those three titles of who Jesus is, how would you describe your relationship to Christ. Let's use words that, that maybe will push up against sort of contemporary popular thinking. Would you describe your relationship with Jesus Christ in some way as Lord? Okay, so we're familiar with hearing that here. Okay, let me ask you, does he reign your life? Do you bow the heart and the knee to him as king? 
not just as a neat idea, kind of casual flip-flop Jesus on the shores of Galilee. As a majestic king, does Jesus Christ rule every area of your heart? Or do you still resist his rule? I'll tell you this as I look out. You are seated. If you resist his rule, you are seated among many who have found true grace and peace by submitting to him. By confessing him as Lord, as Romans says. Let's move into the three descriptions of his work. Look at chapter 1, verse 5, the second part. So in the greeting, we saw three descriptions of who Jesus is. Now in a doxology, John writes this, this praise and this glory to this person. He's going to highlight three aspects of his work. Look at the second part of verse 5, chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First one is to him who loves us. The first aspect worthy of praise. The first aspect when we come to this table today, worthy of celebration is this. God loves you. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what we don't offer here? We don't ask you to just clean yourself up. Put on nice clothes. Start using better language. What we, what we do here, what we should be doing here, down to every member, is introducing you to this person and reminding you that he loves you. When Jesus went to the demoniac and he was in the graveyards and he was cutting himself and he was naked, Jesus said nothing about garments. He introduced himself. And later on, you find the man clothed and in his right mind. Later on, after he meets and submits to the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know he loves you? When you chew the bread this morning... And you drink the cup this morning, that represents his love for you. Because that really is how he loves with effect. It is especially demonstrated in the next description. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the second aspect worthy of our praise and celebration this morning. He loves you. Or as in Malachi, how has he loved us? We might ask that. Well, John would say he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Two phrases predominant in the book for this redemptive work, and we're going to find this, is the slain lamb and the sacrificial blood. And through those you have hope because Jesus forgives sin. Finally, he made us a kingdom priest to his God, the Father. The third aspect worthy of praise is Christ's inclusion of us in his royal and priestly work. Do you know what that means? It means we have work to do. You know what that means? While the world despises us, and while our brothers and sisters are being persecuted throughout the world right now, John wants them to know they already inhabit a high position with Christ before God, even if locked behind bars. This is amazing what God has invited us into, but it also means that we as a local church have work to do as priests and as rulers. Finally, verse 7, 
the message of Revelation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Revelation is the detailed account of what that glorious appearing will be like. Verse 7 tells you it will be a return in full power and glory. He is coming with the clouds. It will be a return in power and glory that is evident to the entire earth, unlike his first advent, where most people missed it. And all that was needed was a cloak of poverty and zero status and his teaching that totally went against the religion of his day in some regards. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, all tribes of the earth. It will be a glorious appearing and it will have an effect. Listen to the effect. All tribes of the earth will do what? Wail. Weep. Cry out loud. But there'll be a second response because the saints of the earth will respond as John, even so let it be. Truly, may it happen. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Two responses. We live in a culture and among a generation that is characterized as scoffers. Second Peter 3, 3-4 says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And they will wail when they see Him. Revelation expands what is taught by Jesus in Matthew 24. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And I'll ask you one more question. So what? What does that have to do with us today? Well, are you ready for His return? What I mean by ready is, are you among the saints who say to this glorious appearing, Amen, King of kings, Lord of lords, or are you among those who look and you will see Him and you will wail on account of Him? Because one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, King, to the glory of God. Submit to Christ's reign because of who He is, what He has done, and what He is about to do. Verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray.